I ask you to turn your Bibles to Acts 17. Looking at beginning of verse 16, the end of the chapter. We started this initially last Sunday and had a brief intro into it. This idea of pre-discipleship. Um, what do I mean by that? I'll never forget a few years ago, we were I was out visiting some of the folks that lived uh, around the church and um, came across it. And it was someone that was almost within sight of, of the church building. And I just got to meet them. They had moved to the area and I uh, just wanted to welcome them and ask them some questions about uh, church and about Jesus. And she was someone born and raised in America and, and said, you know, I've, I've never really gone to church and I've just heard about Jesus, but I've always kind of wondered who he is. And I've never, I've never had anyone explain it to me. And I said, well, I'd love to do that. That's why I'm here. Uh, and we were able to talk about who Jesus is and, and what he's done. But I walked away from there thinking, wow, this is someone that is almost within sight of the church building and doesn't really know anything about Jesus. What do I mean by pre-discipleship is the idea that we live in a place right here where the framework of understanding that there is sin, that there is a God, that the God is aware of our sin, that there is judgment, that there is a law, there is an expectation for us, is all new information for someone. And this is what I mean by pre-discipleship. Before we can understand that there is a need for a Savior, a need for salvation, there has to be an understanding that there is guilt before us with God and that there is a God of which we will be held accountable for. So this is kind of what I mean by pre-discipleship, and it is where we have to be. Where Paul was at, we see in Acts 13 and other places, where he was able to teach right from the law and say this is where there is Messiah and this is why the Messiah had to suffer and die and rise again and here's Jesus and he fits the bill. And people were able to come because they understood the Old Old Testament. If I open up the book of Leviticus today, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to lose half of you right here, right? Much less the person out that, you know, doesn't go to church. So that's who we live around, though. That's who we work with. Those are our neighbors. And so Paul is in a situation where he's doing pre-discipleship. He's not talking to Jews primarily in this passage of what we're going to be reading. And so we already saw how that we need to have eyes to see what the idols are, to be burdened by that, to be in the marketplace, to take our faith there, not just let it stay in the synagogues, don't let it stay in our churches, don't let us stay in our Christian ghettos. I remember when I was in Egypt and I got to see the Christian community and it was in a ghetto. But it was marvelous there uh, where we saw the sculptures of the rock faces. It was amazing they had there, but no Muslims were there. This is only where the Christians go, right next to the landfill. And I thought, you know, 
how many times we do that here in America where we only talk about the gospel, we only have freedom to do this in our safe communities. Uh, and so there must be this idea of taking to the marketplace that Paul is doing here. And as such, he gets a hearing because they're curious about him. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this. I'm going to read this passage and see how he teaches, how he preaches, and to get some lessons on what it means for us to do what we call pre-discipleship. When someone doesn't believe the Bible is the Word of God, don't r- really know anything about Jesus, and they've got their own construct of how they live their life. What do we do with that? Uh, So with that being said, let's read this together. I'm going to ask that we stand as we read this in honor of this being God's word, uh, beginning with verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was thinking these are two different gods that they were referring to, Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and Arabicite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. You may be seated. So Paul's kind of off the normal path of how he does his mission strategy and that he is by himself. He's exhausted the synagogues, going to the marketplace, and now this audience is given to him uh, right there in Athens. And notice he's provoked. His spirit is provoked. We talked about that last week of being provoked by the idols, things that are not worth worshiping and will uh, disappoint us in the end. So we keep doing them. We'll keep doing them and doing them 
hoping that perhaps maybe it will fill our hearts. And so he's in the marketplace, and you see in verse 18 that there's these two types of folks here, the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. We have had philosophies all throughout time. Uh, if you study philosophy, one of the things that will, you will see is that there'll be one philosopher that will propose something to help explain away why life exists when there's a thing called death. Death is the problem. If there was no death, we wouldn't have philosophy. We're trying to do away with this. And then the next popular philosopher comes and contradicts the other one. And the cycle continues. And it goes from one extreme to another. And it goes back and forth. And so you've got the Epicureans and the Stoics who both are trying to struggle with this thing called death. And, and the Epicureans are trying to live in accord with nature to try to rid themselves of pain. Uh, even though uh, there is still death, the Stoics are much uh, the same. And they're still trying to, to deal with it uh, and then coming at it with totally different versions. So someone has said uh, th- that the Stoics says, be strong even though death is the end. The Epicurean says, have fun even though death is in the end. And so that's the idea. How do we deal with this? If death is the end, there is no joy. And accomplishment means nothing. Philosophy is encouraging. <laughs> Uh, in fact, the book of Ecclesiastes is very much about philosophy and says that everything under the sun is meaningless. Meaningless under the sun. And the point of it being there, is, there has to be something above the sun which makes life full. The thing is what's scary about this is the Epicureans and the Stoics are just saying, okay, let's try to live this life and let's pretend like there is no death. And so they get kind of cynical about things, even though they're trying to enjoy the life that is there. Uh, Epicurus is simply saying, you know when you decide I'm, I'm going to be the cynical, I'm going to live life as if death is the end, and in spite of all my meaningless, underneath there's still anxiety, because what if there is something that comes after death? All right, what if? And that's the hard edge that Stoics, Epicureans, and Agnostics And atheists are wondering, okay, what if I'm wrong? You know what's underneath all our anxiety? Underneath all our anxiety really is the fear of death. You know why you want to accomplish so much in your work and your family? Because you want something to remain. There is a hard fear that our life is like the waves on the ocean. Just wash in for a little bit and then wash out and nothing remains. Be encouraged. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's where we're at. That's the fear that we all are dealing with. And so, well, diet. We'll get in shape. We'll get new clothes. We will keep trying to push off this thing called death and it's not working. We don't want our life to be a phantom. So here they are, and this is the life that, that Paul's in. He's walking in these circles. And they start, Paul's talk, talking about Jesus, talking about resurrection. The word anesthesis is the Greek word here. It's like, are you talking about another idol named anesthesis and Jesus? And notice the words that say, what does this babbler wish to say? You see that in verse 18? 
He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. And so the word that he's using, babbler, is not really an encouraging word. It's a derogatory term. It's kind of like saying, what is this little bird doing that's nervously looking around trying to pick up a french fry out of McDonald's parking lot? That's the idea behind this word, babbler, okay? Uh, You know one of the things that's always really fun is when you start talking about Christ, you start talking about the Bible, you start talking about Jesus coming for our sins or forgiving us of our sins, everybody starts looking at you as, what cave did you crawl out from underneath? (laughs) You're dumb. You ever had that? If you believe that Jesus is life, that is found in the Bible, you're going to be automatically labeled as inferior mentally. Are you ready for that? It's, going to, it's happening. You just haven't been exposed to it if you hadn't had that happen yet. But here's the thing. That happened to Paul, too. That happened to Jesus, too. Happen the disciples. When we go there, when we take the mantle of call me an ignoramus, because I believe that Jesus is God, we are walking the same paths that Paul walked. And it's okay. All right? It's okay. And so here they are. I say, what is this babbler talking about? Talking about resurrection and talking about Jesus. And so they take him to an Arabopagus and this, all right, let's, let's hear you out. What's going on here? So, Verse 22 is when the sermon begins, the speech. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So he's observing their culture. And let me just bring out to you one of the very first lessons for us in working in pre-discipleship, people who don't know really anything about God. What is Paul doing? Paul is looking and acknowledging their thirst for God's kingdom. Okay? Everybody is looking for God's kingdom. They are. They don't know that it's found in Jesus. But there is a, an ideal in their life that this is good. This is what would make my life meaningful. And what they don't get is that these are just side effects of Jesus being the king. All our hero movies are about this idea that there is a king who suffers and wins the victory when it's all said and done. There's this echo for the thirst for God's kingdom. Every song that is about love and romance and how that there is a guy that will suffer on your behalf is about the story of a king who loves you, knowing everything about you, and does lay it all for you. I have just probably covered 80% of all songs, movies, and books in the last 10, 15, 20 years. There is a thirst that everybody has for an eternal kingdom. And notice what he does. He says, look, I see that you're very, you, you love to worship. You've got idols everywhere. I see that you're very religious. And so look, we're not going to be able to win people to the Lord and talk to them if we first say, man, that just stinks. I can't believe you worship that. So what if someone makes fun of your dad or your mom? Does that work for you? No. So what do you do when they start insulting Jesus? That doesn't work for us either, does it? So what we do is first look for 
the things that we can grab onto. That there is a thirst for an eternal king. I see that you long for a relationship that is unconditional and loved. That's awesome. That's great. God made you that way. Did you know that? To look for these things of an eternal kingdom. I believe that as a church, that when we start serving God's kingdom and not just the name Green Pines, that we will start drawing kingdom seekers. It's amazing as we've been going out and doing some of the survey work in Churchill uh, neighborhood, one of the things that we've come across is that there's some people who are just plugged into different reasons, but they'll ask, what are you doing in the community? I want to join you in that. Isn't that interesting? They're not so interested about sitting here at this time, but they are, seem to be interested in what are you doing because we believe that the kingdom of God is, is something that is a benefit to other people. And so you start looking and acknowledging people's thirst for God's kingdom. So think about the people in your life that are struggling with what you believe, that you believe Jesus as God and resurrection. How do they thirst for the eternal kingdom? What are the things that they're looking for, longing for? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're just kind of exploring, figuring things out. I'm just going to share with you, there is an eternal desire that God has given you that is satisfied when Jesus is the king, which all these things belong to. And so he says, you know, I've passed along, observed the objects of your worship. I find also an altar with this description to the unknown God. And they had a lot of gods. I mean, just Athena, Poseidon, Nikes, uh, Zeus, Hera, Hermes, Apollo, Ares, uh, uh, or the god of war, Aphrodite, Eros, uh, Pan. I mean, it just keeps on going. Uh, These Greek gods and Roman gods that were there. So he says, what therefore you worship as known, unknown, this I proclaim to you. All right? So here's the second thing that Paul is doing here. You bring out the inadequacies of what they worship. You ask questions. So you just say, well, I thought you just don't insult. You don't insult. No, you don't insult. You start asking and bringing out where are the gaps in their system. You see, everybody believes something. Everybody believes something. And see, one of the things that I I know that you struggle with because you tell me and you ask me about it, that person who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, who is always asking you questions, always attacking what you believe. And so you come to me and you ask me, hey, can you help me out here? What are some evidences? What are some things that point to the validity of what I believe? And that's fine. But listen, Part of what you've got to do is not just be on the receiving end of the questions. Ask some of the same questions they're asking you. Ask it of what they believe. Before you can really talk about Christ, it helps them to understand, you know, you don't have it together either. (laughs) You know, a lot of times people will will talk about, well, you know, I think that this truth thing and God, it's kind of like this story of the elephant and a bunch of blind people there and and they're all trying to figure out what kind of animal this is and one's filling the trunk and think oh this is like a snake uh this is a snake and someone fills the legs like no this is a tree you know someone fills the size like no this is a wall and so and then the moral of the story is well no it's all these things together and you can't understand it by your one perspective and they say well that's how you are christian you just see god one way but you know what's Assumed by that? That the storyteller sees it all. (laughs) Right? 
The storyteller sees the whole picture and he's not blind. And this is the person talking to you like, oh, I see it all together. Listen, you've got to show the inadequacies of what they believe. And they're there. They're there. So ask the questions. You notice what Paul is doing. Say, hey, you, you worship all these things, but is there some things you don't know? I want to talk about some of the things you don't know. And let me share this with you. The, so ask the questions. What are some good questions to ask? Well, how did you come to that, per, that point of view? Someone says, I don't believe in God. Well, how did you get to that point of view? Just ask that question. Figure out who that person is. What's happened in their life? Chances are they really got hurt by a Christian or life itself. More often that's what's going on. Ask the questions, how did you get to this perspective? Ask simple questions, how is this working for you? Start thinking through, is this consistent? Is this consistent? One of the things that strikes me is that the people who are really pro uh, the fact that you can change your, your gender don't want to really believe in God which means evolution is the option. And if evolution is the option, then how does that work? What, what's the main tenet of evolution is that the strongest survive? Evolution of the species? So is there any compatibility with saying that the strongest survive and anybody can be whatever gender you want? Yes, there is. Because that doesn't bring reproduction. And if anybody can just do whatever gender they want to be, then it's inconsistent with evolution, as well as homosexuality would be inconsistent with evolution. And so there's inconsistencies found with what they say they believe. Part of it is just bringing it to light. Bringing it to light. You see, the Christian worldview, of what God brings here to us, makes the best sense of a reality. What do I mean by that? How do you explain evil? If people are saying, well, you know, truth is all relative, which means evil is all relative. Doesn't have to be. If truth is relative, evil, what we decide what evil is, is relative. It just kind of moves around depending on the people and the context. That's great, until you really meet up with something evil. Like killing millions of people. You see, relatively doesn't make sense of reality. The Christian worldview says, you know why that happens? Because there is an enemy and he has a place in every man's heart where pride reigns and mankind will do all kinds of things to kill others to make themselves feel better. How do you explain reality? How do you explain when thousands, hundreds and thousands of people are destroyed or killed by genocide or by earthquakes and natural disasters and the other half of the world really doesn't care? Am I speaking in unrealistic terms? How do you explain that reality? Well, the Christian worldview says man is a sinner from birth. No, we are not inherently good. But yet good still comes 
because of the working of God through us still. There is grace still in this earth whereby good still happens. You've got to think through and show the inadequacies of what they believe. And so how do you do that? Ask yourself, if I believe that, then how do I support the things I value? If I do not believe that there is life ever after, after I die, then why does it matter to do any good? So what does that person value if they are an agnostic or an atheist? Does that make sense in the atheistic worldview where there is no explanation for good? This is part of what I mean. Yes, you need to know your scripture. You need to know what the promises are. And it is an indispensable, critical tool in sharing the gospel. But when you're talking with someone who does not believe in the Bible, part of what you have to do is love that person, know that person, listen to that person, and help them to see the inadequacies of what they do have. All right? But then... We're going to see what Paul does here. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it. And that's sometimes where you have to start. There's a God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. He is not a, a human that is limited by time and space. He does not nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. You know what what Paul's doing here? You proclaim God's greatness. You proclaim God's greatness. One of the tendencies that we do is we tend to view God as a human with the same limitations. I remember one guy I was talking to and he was hung up on the fact, well, how does God hear all those prayers? And I was like, what do you mean? Well, there are people praying everywhere, all the time. How, how does he do that? How can God do that? So do you understand by the definition of God that he is limitous in power? <laughs> and he, just, he kept thinking that God was like a man and limited in the same way. You see, part of what we do is declare the, God, the greatness of God. One of the, uh, the hardest things that we deal with is when people are saying to us, I can't believe in a God that allows bad things to happen. And sometimes I ask, well, how does good things ever happen? You ever think about that? How does good things ever happen? But then, they'll talk about, and, and there are unexplainable evil things to happen but part of it is understanding if you believe that god is so great that he could have stopped that if he has all that power that he could have stopped it and he's so good that he should have stopped it is it reasonable to assume that if he's so powerful and so good that he's also so wise beyond our comprehension is it conceivable there are some things that happen that god knows and he alone knows how and why that happens if you're going to lay to him all power and lay to him all goodness you've got to lay to him also all wisdom now parents dads don't you know you do that with your children aren't there times you tell your child to do something and they cannot for the life of them understand why you being a good dad would allow that to happen 
seatbelt? What kind of good dad's going to strap up their child in the back of a seat and restrain all movement? Do you know something that the child doesn't? Yeah. If that's true for you and your child, how much more true is it with a God and us? You proclaim the greatness of God. That's what he's doing here. We just don't get how great God is. That's why, I tell you, that's why sometimes the glory of God is given greater through us in the time of suffering. Because anybody can understand worshiping God when things are going well for us, but when things are going bad and hard, and we say, God is so great still, then people start to puzzle and wonder, what on earth are you talking about? You think something that I don't understand. Yes, yes, we believe the greatness of God. You proclaim it, like Paul is doing here. And this is what he goes on and says. Since he himself gave to all mankind life and breath and everything you're proclaiming. Look, everything is owed to him. This is God's world. You're living in it. And you're breathing his air. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. This is not really to the point, but listen. That's the answer to our country. What I just read, he had made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. The problem is people don't believe that. And that's why they have full permission that they give to themselves to slaughter others. But we have also have a worldview that is godless. We're just reaping what we sow, guys. When we say that the God is not great, that He is not working in this way, then it leaves us down an evolutionary perspective where evolution is, hey, kill them if they're weak. If you think you're greater than that, kill them off. We're talking about consistent, consistency. But here, he's, he is laying out truth left and right that revolutionizes society. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. <laughs> That's huge for us to think through as we consider world economic powers. That they should, that they should seek God. Perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Listen, we got to believe that God is working in their life. Working in their life so that they will turn and seek God. That's what you pray for. One of the things I do when I help people uh, go through this is say, have you considered all the good things that have happened in your life? How did that happen? Talking to a a young man just recently as he's being exposed, not really knowing too much about Jesus, but being exposed, and he was starting to think through, you know, I've never really suffered for for things, and everything I needed, I had the money for, and and all these opportunities have been given to me. Is you think that might be God? Yeah. Yes. Light bulbs start to go off. God has been working in your life to draw you to Him. Have you considered that? All the things that have happened, the good things that have happened in your life that's been setting you up, God has been working all along the way so that one day you would seek Him. 
And that's what he's telling a bunch of the Athenian people right here. And then he says, yet he's actually not far from each of us. In him, we live and move and have our being. So that's a poem. He's quoting a poem to Zeus. Verse 28. In him we live and move and have our being. Someone wrote a poem to Zeus. Paul memorized it. It's not the only time he quotes that same poem. He, he quotes it in, in Titus also. And then you see again, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. This is a Stoic poet, poet that he quotes there. Now, does Paul believe everything in that Zeus poem? No, he doesn't. But for some reason, he read it, he memorized it, and he used it. Listen, we've got to use language that they understand. Use language that they understand. There are kernels of truth that you can find. Find them. You see, culture, some of the culture just needs to be flat out rejected. Fifty Shades of Grey, that's rejected. Why? Because that's pornography. That is very clear in opposition to what God has said for sexual ideals. Some things are to be outright rejected. There's no, no thought about that, right? Some things can be redeemed. Some things can be redeemed. One of the things I started doing with the students for last couple Sundays is, okay, let's look at the iTunes top song for this week. And I have a lot of fun reading it because um, they hate how I read it. <laughs> but I love how I read it. <laughs> and so I, I talk about it and say, okay, what is this singer saying? What makes them happy? What's, what's their worldview? And sometimes we're going to find things that actually is fitting. And some things we want to expose, why is this wrong? But you know what I want them to do? The next time they hear that song, which they will, I want, you to, I want them to remember a few things about who God is, who Jesus is, and what does it mean to worship Him. Be familiar enough to be able to redeem some of the tools of culture. Use it and speak into it. That's why when you watch movies, and I know you do, when you watch movies, ask yourself, how does this point to the gospel? How does it have any themes that's related to God and who Jesus is and what he's done? Is there any heart, thr- heart cries, heart, any thirst that echoes with the gospel? It's there. It's there. But listen, we don't go to the movies and say, this is my source to say, now you're going to change. No, we're just using it to get to the power source. Okay? So look for those language that they can understand. Paul does that. He does that. He finds some things of culture and he redeems it. And then a couple of very important points when it comes to sharing the gospel with pre-discipleship 
We're looking and, and we're, we're examining what they, what they do worship. You need to know what they do worship. Acknowledge their thirst for God's kingdom. Find how they're thirsting. It could be just someone who's a political activist, but they're really compassionate. Say, hey, that's awesome. You have such compassion for people. Do you know that's part of God's kingdom? Start looking for that. Then you're going to bring to light the inadequacy of what they do worship. Start asking those questions. Get them thinking about what they do worship. How does it consist with the worldview? Is there inconsistencies in what they say and believe and live? Then you proclaim God's greatness and say, look, do you understand how God really is? Not just what you think he is. Proclaim God's greatness and use language they understand. Start looking for the songs, looking for those movies, looking for those things in business life or in family life that says, hey, let me share how this points to the gospel. But then you have to proclaim repentance. You have to proclaim repentance. Notice what he does. He says, for we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. In this, Paul still calls mankind to turn from their false gods and to turn to Jesus Christ. This is probably one of the harder points for us. I mean, once, once the conversation's opened up and we're talking about Jesus, I was like, okay, I guess we're going to talk about Jesus. But then we talk about how great he is. We start exposing some of the things that they believe and how that is inconsistent. But I don't really want to ask them, will you turn from their sin to trust Jesus Christ? But what if they said no? But you have to. Because Jesus is not Lord until he becomes their king. And they cannot know the greatness of who Jesus is until there is a turning from the things they worship to say, Jesus is my identity. Jesus is my hope. He is my Savior. Let me just share with you a couple questions that I've memorized. Because sometimes I get a little paralyzed of fear when I'm here at this point. I like, okay, what, what, what do I do? I get to this question, these questions I've memorized. I ask first, do you understand everything I've shared with you? Just ask that question. Do you understand the things I've shared with you? Figure out where you are with them. And the next question is, is there any reason why you would not want to make Jesus your king and know this forgiveness? Would you be willing to turn to him right now? That's the question. You can have your own variety of it, but I go there. Because it's at this point where you're calling people to repent. You see, salvation is not just an addition thing. It is a replacement. You cannot just continue to worship Zeus and Athena and Aphrodite and Eros, which would be compatible to our God of beauty and sex, Aries, war, which things we do worship today. You cannot continue to worship these things and worship Jesus Christ. One must submit to the other. And that takes us to the last thing that we must proclaim. And that's resurrection. We proclaim 
resurrection because it's the only way repentance works. It's part of what makes God so great. It's what brings the world together. It is written in the fiber of nature itself, this thing called resurrection. And so that's what we must present. And so that's what Paul does. He says, look, he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. You must repent. There's going to be a call when you will be held accountable by God for your sin. And everyone's going to be the same boat. And that's why we're all scared because of this thing called death. And he's appointed that time. And all this he's given to us, assurance to us by raising him from the dead. Jesus, this judge, has risen from the dead. He's done what we can't do and we're afraid of. Jesus died and rose again. It's what makes sacrifice effective. It makes the love of God effective. It makes the holiness of God accessible to us. It makes God just and us still be in the kingdom. It's mandatory to talk about the resurrection to say Jesus rose again. But notice the reaction. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. One of the things you need to understand when you're talking with someone that's what we would say pre-Christian, pre-discipleship, it's not so quick. It's not the same reaction that we saw in Acts 13 and other places where, man, some people believe right then and there. They're just kind of get and grasp the idea that God is not a stone. They're grasping the idea that God is greater than what they have ever imagined before. They're grasping the idea that there is a judgment day, that there's something after death. They're grasping these things that they're going to be held account by a man named Jesus. And who is Jesus? And they're trying to comprehend the fact that Jesus rose again on the third day. Some will mock. and Some will say, we'll hear you more. Be there. Be there in their life when they're ready to hear more will you do that until that time love them love them listen to them ask them about what they do believe ask them questions to help them understand the inadequacies of those things show them how god is greater and sometimes showing god's greater is not just by your words but by your life proclaim repentance demonstrate repentance proclaim resurrection friends don't be afraid of the marketplace of ideas jesus can stand on his own there he is the truth he is the way he is the life don't be walking ashamed of what you believe in don't let the fact that someone thinks you're ignorant shame you from proclaiming the thing that is the greatest ever. Let your motive and your heart and identity be shaped by the greatness of God and not people you don't even know. That's what Paul did. Let's be that because we have a great God worth being that for. Let's pray.